Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. Welcome home, Chris. How are you feeling? Well, uh, the, the flight home was a little bit rough. It was okay, but I, I managed to get a nasty cold on the flight home, so I've, I've spent the last couple of days recovering from, uh, from that trip, and it's not fun trying to deal with jet lag and a cold at the same time, and trying to prepare for my next trip, which, let's see, it's uh, late Tuesday night, and uh, I'm getting up at some ridiculous hour tomorrow morning to uh, go to the airport to get to Albuquerque, so it's been a quick turnaround at home, and it was a, a bit of a challenging recovery. So for anyone who may not have caught uh, the episodes leading up to this one, do you mind sharing where where you went and what you were doing there? Last week, Rich, Lowen, and I were in the UK for a few different reasons. Uh, the primary purpose of the trip was to go to Maker Central, which was a large maker fair located in Birmingham, England. Uh, so Rich and I brought over... Uh, Rich's uh, some some of Rich's equipment, and we were wowing the folks over there with these uh, this little CNC machine that Rich had designed. We uh, we spent a few days there, and then we headed over to London afterwards. We needed to get back there to fly out, and I thought it would be a good idea to uh, show Rich some of the sights of of London, since uh, his past trips that that he's been to London have been uh, pretty brief and have been. Uh, with family, so they've been a little bit different in terms of their uh, their focus than uh, than what we would do. So, yeah, it was uh, so it was a whirlwind tour of Birmingham and London over a couple of days. So, what was your impression of Maker Central compared to other Maker fairs you've been to? It was a bit different than what we're used to. the The size of it was nice. It was uh, first off the the National Exhibition Center in Birmingham is massive. I couldn't believe how large this place was. Uh, it is a dedicated exhibition space, and I think we were in hall number twelve of twenty, and it was it was absolutely enormous. Uh, so that was that was interesting to see. Uh, also, compared to our maker fairs over here, it was far more commercial than uh, than we're used to. There were fewer sort of makers showing off what they were doing specifically, like sort of just individuals who were showing off what they were doing just for the fun of it, uh, versus commercial enterprises that were showing off some of what they were doing. Uh, you know, there were wood turners, professional wood turners that were there, and there were some companies selling wood turning equipment and things like that. Triton, which is a large tool company in Europe, uh, similar to like a DeWalt or a Milwaukee in North America. Uh, they were there and had a, had a large booth set up. But it was a lot of fun. A huge number of people walked through the door. I think there were 4,000 people on Saturday that walked through the door. And I don't know what the numbers were for Sunday. It, was, it wasn't quite as busy. It was a bank holiday weekend in the UK that weekend, and the weather was absolutely stunning. So it wasn't surprising that we didn't have uh, a lot of people walking through the door on Sunday. Nice. And in true Canadian fashion, you guys were handing out custom hockey pucks to people. How, how was the reception to that <laughs> from, from the Brits? Yeah, so the, as a bit of a backstory, one of Rich's kids is is heavily into hockey, and he did these custom hockey pucks for the team one year on his large CNC router, and the the pucks went over well, so he decided to build a, a custom puck carving mill out of some spare parts. I, I don't know that anyone else has ever built a custom puck carving mill any, ever, but Rich has one. 
And so we we brought it over. It was funny watching people's reactions because half the people had no idea what these hockey pucks were. Uh, the other half were like, these look like hockey pucks. And then, yeah, yeah, no, that's what they are. Far more people knew what they were than I was expecting. Everybody seemed to have a good time when uh, when they found out what was going on. And of course, we had a big Canadian flag hung over the booth. So people quickly made the connection as to what it was that was going on. And sort of word got around the hall of uh, these two crazy Canadians that were there customizing hockey pucks. So we, we got an excellent reception and everybody there was uh, was super welcoming, which was uh, which was nice to see. So did Rich tote over all the hockey pucks as well in his suitcases, <laughs> or did you guys pick those up while you were there? No, fortunately, we didn't have to tote those over. That would have been miserable on top of the 100 pounds of CNC equipment that we pulled over. Vectric is the software that Rich uses for his machine, and they happen to be located just outside of Birmingham. They were kind enough to purchase the pucks locally for us. So there's a there's a company in Sheffield that was the source for all the pucks. And so we just showed up and, and had them there. But I, I don't know how many pounds of pucks there were. There was probably 40 or 50 pounds worth of pucks there. So it was nice that we didn't have to carry those over as well. And then after the, the fair, you orchestrated a couple of visits and, and trips for the, the two of you. And one of the more impressive sounding ones was the goldsmiths hall in london so how did you wrangle that the, one of the nice things about getting involved in the various communities that i'm involved in uh, jewelry making and watchmaking and things like that is I, i've gotten to meet a, a bunch of amazing people over the years uh, last year at the santa fe symposium one of my fellow speakers was dr robert organ uh, he's i believe he's the deputy warden of the worshipful company of goldsmiths uh, or the goldsmiths company in london and uh, he gave this great talk on fakes and how the goldsmiths hall deals with uh, or finds fakes and, and recognizes them he suggested that the next time i was in london to give him a shout and let him know and uh, he'd make sure that uh, that we got a tour of the place so uh, unfortunately uh, robert wasn't in town when we were going to be there. Uh, however, we were very fortunate, and uh, Dave Mary was able to give us a uh, a walkthrough of the uh, of the Goldsmiths Hall, the Goldsmiths Company. Dave is in charge of training the new assayers at the Goldsmiths Hall, and has been there for over forty years at this point. So he's incredibly knowledgeable about what's going on there and gave us a great tour of what happens at the company. For anyone who might not be familiar, what is the the role of an assayer? Before I get into that, I should talk a little bit about what the company does and, and how long they've been around. Uh, so they've been around now for 690 years, give or take. And I believe they're brought into existence in 1327. I think it was Edward III who, who formed them. And it, it began as a way of controlling the jewelry trade in London itself. So anybody who wanted to be a goldsmith and sell precious metals as finished goods inside of the city of London needed to be a member of the goldsmiths hall and they needed to have approval to be able to sell from them. Uh, which is convenient. It's a you know sort of a form of protectionism, but it it's important when um, when you don't have any 
you know you don't really have any consumer laws or or uh, manufacturing laws protecting you the these guilds were important for controlling trade and and controlling the quality of goods that were were being made in the city at the time and on top of that they also checked to make sure the quality of the metal was up to par so if you said that you were selling something that was sterling silver the the warden of the a company would arrange to make sure that all of your pieces were checked and that they were in, you know that they were in fact sterling silver or if it was 18 karat gold 22 karat gold they checked to make sure that that's what uh, that what you were saying you were selling is actually what you were selling and so they would go around to each of the makers you know each of the goldsmiths on a regular basis and they would check all of the pieces that these uh, artists were actually producing the science of checking the quality of metal is assaying where you're you're checking to see that it is actually what you know what the metal is that you're saying that it is in talking to you one thing uh, that surprised me and it seems absolutely obvious now in in hindsight that I know it but I I didn't know it until you had paid this visit to the the goldsmith's hall and that is where the term hallmarking originated from mm-hmm. and I was not aware that back in the day, the Assayers would actually go around and visit the jewelers themselves. And that eventually, obviously, came a point where that was just no longer tenable. And then they had the jewelers begin to start coming to the hall. Uh, you want to give a little bit of the backstory there on, on where the term hallmarking came from? Yeah, it's it's funny, these terms that we use, and we don't really think about the origins of them we just and we don't question it we just say oh of course that's what it's always been and to be honest for probably 600 plus years that's what the term has been so it's it's not surprising that we don't really think about it but the term hallmarking comes from the act of needing to bring these precious metal items these pieces of jewelry this silver plate whatever it happens to be to the hall to the goldsmith's hall and then it is assayed and marked. So, yeah, the, the whole idea of hallmarking something physically involves the physical process of bringing something to the hall to be marked. And that continues to this day in, in London where you can, you know, as a jeweler, you bring your work to the hall for them to assay it and then mark it with a hallmark. So, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting, interesting history of what that comes from. And I recall George Daniels was very proud of the, the first case that he had ever gotten hallmarked. And actually, I believe his first case was rejected. <laughs> and the, the, the assayer recommended that, that he head back and just add a little bit of silver to the case, and then he'd be able to, to get it hallmarked. And that was a, a very proud moment in, in his career as a watchmaker. It's an interesting process because as a jeweler in the UK, any precious metal item that you make that's over a certain weight, something like seven grams for silver, and I think it's one gram for for gold and platinum pieces, they need to be checked by an independent third party for its purity. And this is something that's in law. It, In fact, it predates this idea of needing to check all these pieces, predates the uh, the English constitution. So it's something that's that's carried on and you know, initially was only enforced in London and then eventually enforced across the entire kingdom. I can understand why people would be would be proud of being able to hallmark their items and have them checked for, for that purity and be able to say, 
this is my stamp, this is my maker's mark on here, and this proves, you know, this hallmark proves that that it is, in fact, the quality of metal that I say that it is. And the first time I'd ever heard of hallmarking, it seemed like a very strange and foreign concept to me because this isn't something that we do here in North America. It is an odd concept for North Americans because there is no... There's no requirement for an independent third party to test our precious metal. I can sell a piece over here and I can stamp it myself. I can stamp it with 18 karat gold or 925 for sterling silver, but I'm the one who's stamping it. And there's nobody checking to see if what I'm stamping it is in fact accurate. So we do have situations here in North America where people are selling goods that just don't meet that standard. But in England, if you want to be able to sell these these precious metal goods, you must stamp them, or you must have them hallmarked, and you must have them independently assayed. So it is a bit of an odd concept for us, and that that idea that we, you know, that somebody will actually check it and will stamp it and verify it's it's actually what you say it is. And there's certainly value in in doing things the way that they do there in London. There's a, there's a, an interesting story hit the the headlines. I believe it was just last year. Here in Canada, a, a jeweler in the capital purchased some gold, presumably from the mint, uh, through a bank. And it comes in a blister pack, so it's it's fully sealed. And when this jeweler went to use the gold in this blister pack, which is supposed to be essentially 99.9% pure gold, he went to roll it and it did not behave at, at all like gold. So then he tested it and sure enough, it, it was not pure gold. Uh, so he brought it back to the bank, and, and the RCMP got involved, and there's um, an ongoing hmm. investigation as to precisely what transpired. Uh, but there is absolutely value in, in having a third party or a, a governing body deem that the metal that you're buying is indeed what it says it is. I hadn't heard that story, but that's uh, depressing thinking that, that there is something going on at the Mint, and obviously there's somebody, you know, that's some sort of an internal problem, either somebody intentionally trying to steal metal or uh, or some part of their process that isn't working properly. Interestingly, in the UK, the Royal Mint is actually not above needing to have their items tested. Unlike a jeweler like myself, they don't need every single piece tested. However, there is a, another medieval ceremony that they use uh, called the Trial of the Picks, that tests a certain percentage of all of the precious metal coins that the Royal Mint strikes every year. I think last year, I want to say they tested somewhere around 25,000 coins. And I think the process is that they take one random coin from each production run of of any any coin that they strike. Traditionally, it would go into a small box called a PIX and would be delivered to London and tested once a year. Uh, so in period, the king would give a charter to a mint located in another part of the country. You know, let's say it would be a, a a mint in Birmingham or Sheffield, and he would specify that the coins would need to have a certain mass, a certain size and shape. Uh, the They would have to have a certain quality of stamping on them and also a certain quality of metal. And so they would take 
some percentage of these coins at random, you know, maybe one out of every 10 or one out of every 20 coins. And then they would send them all back to London. And eventually it was the goldsmith's company that was responsible for testing them. And once a year they would go through and they would test all of these coins and make sure that the mints were not actually scamming the king and making coins that were subpar. So you have to think that depending on how big of a problem this is at the Royal Canadian Mint, that's something that's that might have been caught through this process, even though today it's it's mostly a ceremonial process in the UK. Uh, but it might have actually caught something like this, you know, in the at the Royal Canadian Mint. There was another ordeal with the Royal Canadian Mint in recent years where uh, a gentleman was actually uh, caught smuggling gold. Uh... Yeah, they were they were blank uh, the coin blanks, the gold coin blanks that they used for stamping the coins out of. Yeah, he was smuggling them out and was selling them at a local, I guess, the pawn shop or something like that. Yeah, he he got away with, or he he had gotten away with with bringing out quite a few coins by the time he was caught. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of thousands of dollars worth. Yeah, so it is a obviously anytime you're working with with precious metals like that in quantity, there's always the temptation for people to steal it. Uh, so you do have to be careful. And and if somebody's, you know, if this is a situation where somebody's uh, making the coins less pure, uh, or these blister packs less pure, then that that's a problem, mm-hmm. especially because most people are not going to open those blister packs anytime soon. A lot of people Precisely. are buying those as investments. Mm-hmm. And if it hadn't, in this case, if it hadn't been a jeweler who was using it as a as a form of metal for their work, you know, would it, that could have gone unnoticed for years. Yeah, who knows how many of these are, are sitting around in, in safes all around the country or around the world for that matter. So one of the fun side effects of the trial of the picks was that during the tour, Dave brought us into a vault and reached into a bag and handed me this massive gold coin so for the i think it was the the queen and prince philip's wedding anniversary uh, there was some notable wedding anniversary last year and so the royal mint struck this one kilogram gold coin to honor this this event and so they had some of these gold coins there that had been part of the trial of the picks they had been drilled out was you know they had sort of samples cored out of them but they were still almost entirely whole so yeah dave let us uh let us check these out and it's uh it's an impressive thing having a having a one kilogram gold coin in your hands it's it's maybe 12 centimeters across and probably two two and a half centimeters thick and then it is a it's a solid piece of metal I think when when Rich and I were were on the subway afterwards, I think we figured it out, and it was somewhere around sixty thousand dollars Canadian for the just the raw metal involved in that coin. Uh, it was absolutely massive. It was uh, it was an impressive thing to see. Yeah, I can't imagine. Yeah, and he also had the silver version as well, which was a, a one kilogram silver coin, uh, obviously worth considerably less, and uh, because of the density difference in in between silver and gold, it's. Uh, it's almost twice the thickness of the the gold one, but a, a absolutely massive coins. Like they were, they were truly impressive seeing these coins in person and holding them. Another uh, troublesome bit of of Canadian history, uh, mint wise, is uh, Canada hit the the Guinness Book of World Records for making a, a one million dollar gold coin, which is a, I think it was a hundred <laughs> kilograms of solid gold and. Uh, 
That, I have no idea how these guys pulled it off, but that was actually stolen from a museum in Berlin just last year, which is uh, oh, really? mind-boggling. To like, I, It was impressive for you holding a, a one-kilogram coin. I just imagine multiplying that by a, a hundred. I, I have no idea how these guys, number one, got into a museum and were able to, to lift this thing, uh, and then number two, get it get it out of there. Uh, as far as I know, it hasn't reappeared, but uh, it's not something I've looked into. I have to say, 100 kilograms, it doesn't matter what it is, 100 kilograms is not something that's insignificant. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's, That would be difficult to carry, you know, and for something, even with gold, it would be a, it would be a sizable object, but not massive. Uh, so it would be awkward for one person to carry just because of its mass. But I think it, it wouldn't be big enough that it would be easy for two people to carry. So I can't even imagine how you would get out of the the museum with this thing. Like that's a awkward thing to to have to get away with. And while the the face value reads a million dollars, which maybe that was the the case back in two thousand seven, I believe the actual value today is somewhere on the order of about four four or five million U.S. for for that volume of of gold. Yeah, the, these guys uh, definitely got away with with quite the heist if they're able to just melt that down and and sell it as little ingots. Yeah, one of the nice things about stealing something like that, though, is that it's entirely untraceable. You can melt that down and turn it into whatever you want, and and it would it's entirely impossible to trace. So that's that is the one advantage of precious metals is that they can be infinitely recycled and they can be reused, and they could easily melt that down into smaller amounts and sell it off in in small quantities over time. So it's an ideal crime if you can get away with it. Hmm. Theoretically, now there are are some. Rare alloys, we'll say, for instance, Rolex's Everose gold, which has a, a very distinct alloying that uh, I don't know of a, another company uh, anywhere in the world who who has the exact same alloy. And there was someone who was caught lifting gold mm. from Rolex, uh, and I believe it was traced through the the actual alloys that were, were, yeah, were coming out of it. I mean, I mean, you could mix it with other metals, but uh, this this fellow wasn't quite savvy enough. Yeah, this is going to be at least three nines pure, if not four nines pure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know one of the things that the the Canadian mint is actually no, well known for is the high purity that they're able to get through their refining process. So one of the downsides of that is that everything is coming out of there that isn't gold. So I expect that uh, that this bar is probably as close to pure gold as you're going to be able to get in any quantity. And so the, unfortunately, you're not going to not going to have the advantage of some unique alloying compound in there. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you got to handle some interesting specimens of coins while you were there. Did you get any sort of hands-on time or, or behind-the-scenes look at the sort of tooling that they're using to assay the metals that are coming through the Goldsmiths Hall? Yeah, we were able to see the actual facilities where they're assaying pieces and, and where they're hallmarking them. And it's interesting to see how that process has evolved over the centuries. And in fact, it's interesting that the process hasn't evolved dramatically up until recently. Uh, so traditionally, the way that metals were were tested, you'd have a sort of a keychain with known purity metals on them. So, you know, it'd be a little key with a, a stick of 18 karat gold on it or a little key with a piece of sterling silver and another one with Britannia silver on it. 
pure silver. So you would have these, you know, sort of this little keychain with all of your your known good uh, items on it, your known good metals on it. And you would bring that along with your touchstone, which is a particular type of stone. I don't remember the, the details of, of what type of stone it is, but it was a, a particular type of stone. And you would rub your known good sample on this touchstone. And then you would rub the piece that you were testing against that touchstone as well. You would then take a little bit of nitric acid and the nitric acid will dissolve all of the uh, all of the other alloying metals other than the gold or the, the silver. And you can then compare the color of the known good sample versus the one that you've just tested or the, the, the item that you're testing. And it would allow you to check and see what the purity level was. Now, of course, this is, you know, it's a bit subjective, so it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be as uh, as accurate as uh, some of the more modern methods. But it was still an, it was still good enough that you could tell whether something was silver or whether something was actually gold or whether people were trying to uh, trying to scam you. Uh, so, for instance, German silver or nickel silver uh, was uh, an attempt to scam people into believing that what they were buying was silver instead of brass. Right, because nickel silver is basically a brass, and so this is this would be a way that you could test to see if that piece that you were being sold was actually uh, silver or nickel silver. The next sort of step up in technology to test was uh, is a, a fire assaying method. We'll put a link in the show notes to the details about it uh, and how it's actually done. But essentially, you're taking small quantities of something and, you know, of a, of, a, of a sample that you're trying to test. And you would use various methods um, of melting that, that sample and then testing the weight of it and, you know, versus what it started as. Uh, you could remove the other alloys that were in there. I believe they use a lead, uh, a lead alloy. So you'd mix the let's say the gold with this lead alloy in in the fire and the lead will absorb all of the other alloying metals then you'll take the sample and you'll put it in a cupola which is a particular type of crucible made out of a particular material you put it in the kiln and the lead will oxidize and be absorbed by the cupola and in the process of being absorbed by the cupola, it will also absorb all of the other alloying metals along with the lead oxide. What you're left with then is, is pure gold. And you can take that sample of pure gold, test it against the original weight of the metal that you were given, and you can find out how much of that original piece was pure gold and how much of it was other things. So you could then say, Okay, this was seventy-five percent gold, and that's what they told me it was. It was you know, it's eighteen carat. But if they say that this is eighteen carat gold, and really what you end up with is fifty percent gold at the end of it, well, then you know that they're trying to scam you, and that they're that that isn't right. So fire assaying is a is a very old method of of doing this, and it does require some material uh, and some some equipment to do it well. But it is a very effective way of being able to test the purity of of metal eventually there there are different chemical ways of doing it that have come up Uh, and then the most modern way of doing it uh, this is something that i think has only become accurate enough in the last five to ten years 
is an XRF technology. So it's actually using X-rays to test the purity of the metal. And it's it's not very fast, unfortunately. It can take several minutes to actually test the purity of it. Uh, but it's non-destructive, which is a nice thing. And it will break down exactly what materials are in that, you know, in that particular piece, uh, which is kind of nice. It, it, it will tell you a lot about the piece above and beyond just, oh, this is platinum or this is gold. I've had a chance to use, uh, I don't know if it's the exact same device they would have been using, but a, a mass spectrometer that, that used hmm. uh, X-ray fluorescence, which is what XRF stands for to determine the, the composition of an alloy. And I actually used it to uh, reverse engineer an alloy that I wanted to use to make a, a ring for my wife. Hmm. And I was able to get a, a, a friend to, to alloy that for me and uh, it turned out, turned out really well. Uh, but it's a really fascinating technology. Basically you're looking at the secondary emission of X-rays from a material uh, that have been bombarded with x-rays uh, so you're looking at what's bouncing back off of the the material and and i believe it's the the, the ionization i'm way out over my head here but uh, basically breaking breaking all that down and and every single element on the periodic table is going to give off a different signature and based on the ratio or the the volume of, of those signatures you can take a 100% and break that down into the, the composite parts. So you say maybe it's 75% gold, um, maybe it's 4% platinum, and uh, the rest is made up of, of nickel or, or silver or something like that. And you can get down to really trace elements. Like you, you may find that you've got like a, a fraction of a, of a percent. This is a rarer element like niobium or tantalum or, or something like that and uh, yeah, it's really really interesting technology i don't recall exactly how long the measurements took when we did it but it, to me it actually seemed remarkably fast i was really impressed with, with just how quickly uh the the tech worked uh certainly faster than than using the the touchstones which uh, i have also used in the past to to settle the uh, to settle a debate over the composition of the the plating that is on vintage Omega calibers, there's, there's hmm. a misconception uh, among uh, numerous people over the years that uh, old Omega calibers were actually plated in pink gold because it's not uncommon to plate a watch caliber in in gold, and these older Omega calibers have a, a rose gold color to them. How about that? It, turned out after this testing there was no gold whatsoever and it's just more of a, a beryllium type mix that it has been plated with yeah i think the the advantage of the the xrf obviously the biggest advantage from a from their point of view is the fact that it's a non-destructive test and when i say that it's not very fast i, I think that they were talking about 30 to 60 seconds to test these mm. pieces which sounds quick but the problem that you run into is Somewhere like the the Goldsmiths Company in London, they're dealing with upwards of five thousand pieces a day that they're testing. So when you're you know you're spending thirty to sixty seconds per piece testing, that that's that's a significant amount of time when you have to get through five thousand pieces in a day. So yeah, yeah, you don't have five thousand minutes in a day. Yeah, 
Now, granted, they also don't have a single XRF either. Mm-hmm. They, they, you know, they had uh, they had several of them there that they were using, but it's still a it's still a remarkable amount of uh, amount of work. And the other great upside from it, it too is you you get the the breakdown of what's actually in it, so you can replicate an alloy or, mm-hmm. or determine that it is precisely what it it says it is. Or you can see if there's yeah. trace elements in there that should not be in there. So maybe there you've got an issue in your your process of actually founding the the alloys that you're you're making. And whereas with the touchstone method or, or the crucible method, you're basically eliminating anything that that isn't the precious metal that you're after. So you actually don't know what those other elements were that were also in the the composition. Yeah, the, those other methods are really testing to see what the purity of the metal is, which is important. Mm-hmm. But there's a secondary interest in finding out exactly what the other elements are, and, and that's something that you're that really XRF brings to the forefront. And and when I so when Robert was giving his talk last year at the Santa Fe Symposium, one of the things they've done is they've taken their collection of silver. So one of the advantages when you're when you happen to be the place that everybody has to go to to get your your pieces tested for purity, they get to see all of the newest pieces that are coming out from artists in in your area. And the Goldsmiths Company has actively purchased brand new work from artists over the last 700 years. So they have perfect provenance mm-hmm. for these pieces. They know exactly who made it. They know exactly when it was made. They know you know, all of these, all these details about it. And now with this XRF technology, they've been able to go back and test to see exactly which trace elements are in each of these pieces. And they've cataloged Mm. them all. And it's meant that they now have a database over the last, you know, from the last 700 years that shows exactly which trace elements were in silver, for instance, at various times in history. So as as the refining processes have been have been improved different elements have been taken out of silver you know as time has gone on and so they've i think they were saying that i think dave was saying that they've they're able to sort of reliably put a piece within a 50 year period over the last 700 years just based on on the trace elements that are located in the metal uh, which is pretty impressive it's uh you know that that's not something they were unable to do before. They needed to use other methods like checking the hallmark on it, uh, which there are ways of faking that. So this is a, a more reliable way of finding out. Okay, this metal is actually from this time period, and uh, not just relying on the hallmark that's on there. Fascinating. I can imagine in in both the right or the wrong hands that could be very valuable information to to have that sort of database. Absolutely. Yeah. We've been talking in broad strokes about hallmarks. But what actually distinguishes a, a hallmark? This was something that I, I knew little bits and pieces of, but I wasn't familiar with all of the details of it. So D- Dave was great at explaining what was going on and, and what was involved. And I should say that the reason that Dave is really great at this is because he he actually trains the apprentice assayers in the office. Uh, he started as an apprentice himself and has come up and become a master assayer. And, and he now trains, I think he's had six apprentices there. So one of the things that's important that they do is that they are going to hallmark all of these pieces. And there are five different things that make up a hallmark on a, on any piece. So 
if you take a look at a piece of precious metal from the UK, you'll see it may be very tiny. They may only be 0.3 millimeters in height, but there there will be a hallmark on on these pieces. Inside of it, there's a couple of things that you'll see. The first is the mark of the particular hall where it was assayed. So we've been talking about the Goldsmiths Company in London. They're one of four different assaying offices in the UK, and they're entirely independent of each other. So if you don't happen to like dealing with the London assaying office, you can go to Birmingham, uh, you can go to Glasgow, and I think there's one in Sheffield. Uh, if there isn't any more, there used to be. Anyways, there, there are a number of them around, and as uh, over time, some have come and gone. So the first thing that's on there is a mark to say which assaying office actually tested this metal and which one it came out of. Uh, the London assaying office has their mark is a leopard's head. So that's a that's if you take a look at any of the goldsmiths companies uh, pieces uh, their artwork, you know, even around the building itself there are leopards everywhere and that's part of the you know that's that's their symbol for uh, for their hallmark. The next thing is a stamp to tell it which type of metal it actually is. Uh, so for instance, if it's sterling or if it's silver, not necessarily sterling, but if it's silver, then it has a lion. If it's gold, then it has a little gold, it has a little crown. If it's platinum, it has an orb. So a little orb with a cross at the top of it. You see in medieval ceremonies. Uh, there's a few others I can't remember off the top of my head, but those are the those are sort of the main ones that are there. Uh, so there'll be a stamp to tell you which type of metal it is. Uh, one of those one of those stamps. Uh, the next thing is that there is a purity stamp. So it's a number that tells you what the percentage. Actually, it's not the percentage. It's the parts per thousand of the metal, the noble metal that you're that you're marking. So for instance, if it's sterling silver then it's going to be 925, so 925 parts per thousand silver. If it was 18 karat gold, then it would be 750 parts per thousand of pure gold. So between the, the two, between the metal type and the, and the purity, you're gonna, you can know what type of metal it is and how pure it is. The next thing is, is one of the more fascinating items on there, and it's a letter code to tell you which year it was stamped in. And they've been going through, they only use, I think he said they only use 20 different letters. There are a few of them that have, that don't get used in the same year. So an I and a J, for instance, don't get used in the same year. They use one or the other, but not both. Uh, just because it's impossible to distinguish, especially in some of these small marks, it's impossible to distinguish which, uh, which one is which. Uh, but between whether it's a capital or a minuscule letter, and between whether it is uh, what type of shape the box is surrounding the letter, you can tell based on that which year it was actually stamped. And these are going back hundreds of years. You can you can take a look in the various catalogs and see based on that shape of the the letter stamp as well as the letter itself uh, which year it was actually stamped in. Uh, and they're nearly through this series, so they have to. They're actually getting ready to start on another series with a different shape around the uh, around the letter. And then, last but not least, is the maker's mark. Uh, so, as a maker, you need to register with the hall and register your mark with the hall. 
And traditionally, it is a three-character, uh, like a three-letter stamp that uh, that makes up your maker's mark. Uh, so in my case, it might be CMM for my initials. I might use SHS for my business, Silverhand Studios. Uh, but it would be registered to my name, and I would be the only person using that particular letter code in the area. And again, I think they distinguish based on the shape around the particular the particular maker's mark. And those will get retired eventually because obviously over time you can't just, you know, you can't say, oh, CMM, you're never going to allow anybody else to ever use that that combination of letters. So yeah, the, the five things make up a full maker's, a full hallmark and all five of them must be present for it to be a, an actual hallmark on, on the piece. So it's quite a bit of information to, to pack into the underside of a ring or, or something like that. Yeah, it's funny because Tamara has a, a little ring that she picked up in England when we were there 20-odd years ago. And it's it's got a, you know, she doesn't have large hands and it has a, a fairly small shank on it. And, you know, you pull out the jeweler's loop and you take a look at it and it's got all of that information stamped in there. And you can see exactly, you know, if I pulled out a book and with, with all the information for the letter the letter code and everything like that, you know, we'd be able to find out exactly when that ring was made. We've got the maker's mark in there. So even though it was a relatively generic ring, uh, you know, that, that she purchased in Hatton Garden, it's still something that we could trace back to the actual jeweler who made that ring, you know, 20 odd years ago. And given the the records at the the guild hall, you could do that theoretically with just about any piece made in in Great Britain over the the last several centuries. Absolutely, yeah. You could if you had a piece that was made five hundred years ago in in and around London, and it was hallmarked. You could conceivably go back and find out exactly who it was that made it and when it was made. So, are they still using physical stamps for the most part, or have they moved on to, to something like laser engraving for doing much of the hallmarking? The primary method of of marking is still physical stamps. Now, those physical stamps are being made on on laser engravers, so they've gone away from hand engraving these stamps now, and they're now making the stamps themselves using a laser engraver. Uh, so that I think I think Dave said it was like sixty percent of the the work that they're doing is still physically stamped you know, with a, a stamp that they're making there. However, the shift is moving towards laser engraving. And you can go in and have your piece hallmarked on a laser instead of being physically stamped. And there certainly are advantages of that. Not from a speed point of view. It is slower for them to stamp using a laser than it is to use a physical stamp, especially because you can you can specify how deep you want that hallmark to be. If you want, you can just have it sort of a very thin surface treatment. I don't remember what the the maximum depth was that they would do, but it was significant. And in fact, it looked, somebody looking at it at a glance wouldn't realize that it wasn't stamped with a physical stamp. Like it was, it was really taking out material, you know, it was at least a half a millimeter deep. So it's certainly time consuming for them to cut them on the laser. Uh, And it's, people are moving towards that just because you don't have to worry about, uh, first off, you're not physically displacing metal. You know, anytime you use a, a a physical stamp on a piece of metal, especially a piece of precious metal, it it is going to displace it and potentially change the shape of the piece that you're that you're working on. And depending on how delicate that is, that may be a concern for you. Something like one of my pens, I wouldn't be too concerned because it's a sizable piece of metal and it's not going to be 
you know, it's not going to be damaged by somebody using a, a physical stamp on it. But I, I can imagine people doing some delicate pieces of jewelry. You wouldn't want somebody physically stamping it. So the 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 move the trend is moving towards laser engraving, and they've got they've got half a dozen really high end laser engravers there that uh, that were doing pieces, and, and yeah, they they just throw each piece in and and start you know start engraving it, and uh, it's it's remarkable what they were doing with uh, with some of these uh, pieces. And keeping the volume that uh, I would imagine they're they're going through, they could uh, score a, a tidy profit just capturing the the particles of the precious metals that they're vaporizing with the laser over the course of a year. Yeah, they're obviously they're obviously taking that taking the fumes the 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 vapor out into you know away from the the work area because you don't want that in the work area with your with your employees. So maybe they're you know they're throwing those into a into a very fine or putting in you know perhaps they're putting that air through a very fine filter and they're able to capture that afterwards. I don't know. That would be uh, be something I didn't I didn't think to ask that when uh, when I was there. Perhaps on my next visit, mm-hmm. I would imagine they must have something in place because uh, that that sort of level people tend to be very uh, strict about collecting every last bit of of gold dust or, or platinum mm-hmm. dust. The visit that we had to the Worshipful Company of Goldsmiths was just absolutely fascinating. It was nice to see this gorgeous building and the processes as well as learning a little bit more about the medieval origins of it and the and the history. So that was great. It was a bit amusing when we were leaving because, as it turned out, there was a royal visit at the company while the day we were there. Uh, Princess Anne had some business with the company. Uh, one of the things most people don't realize is that there are a number of these, these companies in London. I, I want to say there's 40 of them or more. And most of them have turned into primarily charitable trusts and so most of the work that they do today is is actually as a charitable trust the goldsmiths company is one of the few that still actively trains uh, people in the same medieval arts that it was originally founded to train and still fulfills its original purpose which is a saying precious metal items in the uk I believe that Princess Anne was there on some sort of charitable business, you know, running part of what part of one of the the charities that the uh, the company deals with. It turned out as we were about to leave, she was about to arrive, so we had to be shuffled out the the side door, you know, sort of kick the riffraff out the side door as the um, as the royalty arrived. Uh, so that was uh, that was sort of an amusing way to finish off our our visit to this medieval institution was. Uh, was then being sort of kicked out the side door by another medieval institution. Kicked out by royalty. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Did you get up to anything else interesting while you were in London? We we covered so many things that we're not going to be able to talk about all of it in this episode. But we, I was able to add in some uh, some watch specific things into the trip as well, which was kind of nice. Uh, since the last time I was there, the worshipful company of clockmakers has given their collection, their extremely impressive collection of clocks and watches to the Science Museum in London. And they're now out on display at the Science Museum. And this this collection is great. It's, um, it's a really broad collection covering, I think their earliest piece is a 15th century chamber clock, uh, all the way up to 
a few of the modern makers like George Daniels and Roger Smith. You know, there are pieces from both of them in, in here as well. So you have a few living watchmakers that are being presented or being represented there, but all the way back to, you know, 15th century pieces and everything in between. Uh, so it's nice to be able to actually see this collection and and check it out. It's presented chronologically, which makes it interesting because you get to see, you know, we talk about some of these different differences and, and progressions in, in escapements and things like that, but it, it's very different to actually see in person when, you know, the pendulum comes in and starts becoming a something that people are putting in clocks. And all of a sudden, you know, the clocks all change from virgin foliate to pendulum clocks. And it's uh, it's nice to physically see that change as they go along. It's also nice to be able to see just how early on watches are something that we would look at and you would, re- you know, you would recognize as, oh, this is a pocket watch. This is something that I could actually see in my pocket and carrying with me and using to tell the time. And that happens very early on in the, in the progression of, of watchmaking. So it's a beautiful collection. It was really nice to be able to, uh, to check out. Yeah. When I saw their collection, it was still housed uh, at the back of the, the guild hall hmm. and uh, it was busting at the seams back then. So I would imagine it now being at the, the science museum that is particularly well laid out and, and more than likely better curated than it was back then. But it was still astoundingly impressive, mm. the, the sheer volume and, and value that they had packed into this tiny space at the back of, of the guild hall when I, I saw it there. And there were a number of, of pieces and bits of horological history that certainly left their impression on me when I, I got to take that in. So it is a, a truly noteworthy collection and uh, i would strongly recommend anyone who's into watchmaking or or horology at all to certainly make a point of of checking out their exhibit at the science museum absolutely it it's a fabulous exhibit as you say it's it's well laid out and curated now uh the i think the piece that that i was i was surprised to see and i was i was pleasantly surprised to see is they have john harrison's h5 on display there Mm. so it's kind of nice to be able to see that in person and uh and be able to check that out of course it's it's in the closed case and it isn't running so it's there's a limit to the value in terms of being able to see it obviously you can't um you can't see the mechanism or anything but it's still nice to be able to see and i was also surprised at the number of of clocks and watches they have that are still running including some that are hundreds of years old uh, you know that are still functioning and keeping reasonable time as well so it was nice to see some of these pieces still still in use and still actually running right now on you know while they're on display. So yeah, the, a great collection, worthwhile visiting. In fact, the entire science museum is worthwhile visiting. If you've never been, uh, mm-hmm. it is it's a great exhibit. They have everything from you know early industrial revolution engines, uh, like they have a an original Nukem engine and Watt engine there. Uh, all the way up to modern computers uh, you know they have a, like they have a cray supercomputer on display there you call that modern uh, that ha- that is not necessarily modern but there Sorry. are examples <laughs> it is an example of a more modern thing yes yeah they've got they've got stuff about space flight in there and they've got all sorts of amazing amazing things on display 
some of the engines and models they have there are great. They've got a um, uh, a model of uh, Babbage's Difference Engine Number Two on display mm. uh, that I believe is is functional. I don't think it, they use it very often, but it is there and functional. Uh, so the fabulous displays. The exhibits are great, and they're certainly geared towards kids. So if you if you have children and you're looking for something to do in London, then I highly recommend the the Science Museum. The one thing I will warn you. I wasn't I wasn't prepared for this when we were there. The uh the museums in London have very easy hours for the workers. Uh they open late and they close early uh during the week. So I think they the earliest they open is ten AM and most of them were closed by half past five. So it means that you you really have to get into the museums during the day if you want to see them. They're not open late at night on on weekdays. I think on Fridays they are, uh, but they're they're not open late on weekdays. So, uh, unfortunately, we didn't get a chance to see a few of the things that we wanted to see, mostly due to the fact that the the museums weren't open when uh, when we were going by. And one of the one of the museums we did miss out on was the British Museum. Uh, we were going to nip into the British Museum quickly to take a look at their watch collection. Uh, and again, they have a, a fabulous watch and clock collection and uh, the reason we were going to visit there quickly was because um, Matt the watch nerd who we've mentioned a couple times on the show he invited Rich and I for drinks after uh, after work and uh, he had suggested a place just across from the British Museum unfortunately they were they were closing up before we were uh, we were able to get there but uh, it was nice to be able to spend the evening uh, Matt and his friend Greg uh, we we sat down, had drinks, and had dinner with them, and we had a great evening of uh, chatting about watches and clocks and uh, some of the things that we we all do and some of their collections. And uh, yeah, it was a, a really nice chance to to visit and and meet uh, meet a couple of of fellow watch nerds in in person. So yeah, it was uh, it was nice to appreciate the the invitation, Matt, and uh, thank you for thank you for having us along for uh, for dinner. It was uh, it was a good evening. And and you and Rich were both officially inducted into the the fold of, of watch nerds and and clock nerds. Absolutely, yeah. Now now a member of team uh, team watch nerd. So uh, yeah, uh, if you haven't seen the uh, the team watch nerd hashtag on on Twitter, then uh, you can go check that out. We'll put a link to uh, to that in the show notes. But yes, I am now an official member of team watch nerd. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand. For security reasons, baggage left unattended will be removed and destroyed. I'm uh, sitting here in London Heathrow Terminal 2 in the departures gate, waiting to get back on a plane back to Toronto and eventually Ottawa, sitting with Rich Lowen, who has been dragging me along on this uh, adventure for the last couple of days. If you listen to the last podcast, uh, I guess a few episodes ago, you'll know that... uh, 
I am here in the UK. We were at Maker Central primarily. That was the, the reason for the visit. And we also made a quick stop in London. And uh, Rich and I are just going to chat a little bit about what we were doing here and what we thought. So I guess my first question to you is, what, what do you think about international travel carrying a large CNC mill with you? It's, it's interesting that you can do it. That you can pack a CNC into two suitcases yeah. and then head off and just schlep these bloody heavy bags through security, through, uh, well, no, I guess we checked it, but, but actually checking it, the uh, Canadian security people did go through every single one uh, of our bags and every, I had everything wrapped in plastic and bubble wrap and they went and opened up every single thing. So someone in security had a, was quite curious about what we were carrying and then schlepping it through uh, the, the London tube is interesting. Uh, about half the stations don't have elevators. So we had to schlep them up and down the stairs, which... Uh, yeah, that got a little bit entertaining, didn't it? It is. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm sure my shoulder will recover by the end of the yeah. month. That was, uh, that was interesting. The, uh, what did you think about travel inside of the UK? Because, of course, for us in, in Canada, you know, famously, we, we have no rail system in Canada anymore. Mm-hmm. And, uh, or at the, least no rail usable system rail system. is astonishing. Yeah, and, it really is. And it, it, it makes you see what it ought to be. Yes. And uh, it's, uh, we just don't have anything like it in North America. Yeah. And certainly not in Ottawa. We were, we were fortunate when we were, our destination was Birmingham, and it was at the large center there, the NEC, I think is what it's called. Yeah, National Exhibition Center, which, which basically, it looks like a spaceship has landed yes. on Earth, and it's a, it's a very futuristic building. You could film a science fiction movie there. It's remarkable how large that building is as well. Yeah. I, I didn't realize when we were, yes. before we arrived, the scale of that, that building. And we start at one end of it, <laughs> trying to find the where, the, it, where yes. the place is, and you're just carrying your bag on and on and on forever, yeah. past the, the vaping convention, past the supernatural convention, past this, that, and the other thing, until you finally get to the, the Maker Central place. Yeah. What did, you, uh, what did you think of Maker Central? This was the first year for it, and we didn't really know what to expect, but what did, what did you think yeah, of it? Yeah, I, I had at first thought it would be a, makers, a Maker Fair. Like, I've been to plenty of those in in Right, we've uh, been to a few maker fairs in in Ottawa and other places. And uh, it wasn't like that at all. It's very, very, uh, it was a commercial thing. And uh, they were using the the brand power of the the YouTubers. Yeah, so the the fair is is commercial, more commercial than than normal than you'd see. So um, they had comped us a booth, actually, which was nice. I had emailed them and said, you know, what? We're we're a much more like a normal maker fair booth where we're uh, what we were doing was uh, was very akin to what normal what I would say makers are doing. So they had that they had at at the show they had uh, wood turners and they had uh, someone with a forge, but the rest of the booths were pretty much commercial, like just selling things and all that. Yeah, and it was nice to see some of that as well. I think that's one thing that we could use a little bit more of at some of the maker fairs because. For a lot of people, they'll see, you know, somebody like us setting up and, and showing off a tool that they're using. And it was nice to see some of those people at the show being able to say, hey, you can buy this. You can you can get supplies. You can get yes. some material. So, In fact, you can go to that booth yes. and buy 
you know, a 3D printer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So some of that was nice. I, it would have been nice to see a few more makers there, although I suspect being the first year, maybe they'll, they'll have some, uh, some more space for makers next year. I have to say the, the booth they gave us was absolutely ridiculous. It was. Uh, we'll, we'll post a photo of, of me standing in the booth before we set up, and it was, uh, it was probably four times larger than the largest booth I've ever had at an art show or, or uh, any kind of a maker fair before. So that was, that was a, a pleasant surprise. Yeah. As we were setting up, he says, here's your booth. And he's, he's, he's like, well, do you have any banners or anything? And it's like, <laughs> no, we don't have anything at all. So we, we tried to use our four-inch by four-inch stickers to, to create a, enough of a presence in the booth. But, yeah, we had the Canada flag that was hanging we, there yeah, as well. I had, yeah. I had brought a flag thinking I'll never put this up because this is just so incredibly obnoxious. But then you see the booth, it, it fit right in. And, you yeah. know, and it was nice because it, it helped people identify who we were and that we were there from a, a ways away. And, of course, we're carving hockey pucks, <laughs> which was a, quite an exotic thing to do in, in England. And uh, so people would look at the hockey pucks and go, you're carving pucks with this sort of, what, what the heck are you up to? And then, then you, you just point at the flag and they go, oh, okay, you're from Canada. Oh, okay, I get it That now. makes a little and, more sense now. Yeah. Not just some crazy person who's, tr- who's yeah. trying to confuse the locals. Yeah. What, what was your highlight of, uh, of Maker Central? For me, it's the, the kids, when we get to make pucks for kids. And yeah, I would, I would uh, call families over, you know, and just frantically wave at them. And they'd, they'd look at me like, oh, my God, there's a crazy man. And, um, but then I'd say, hey, we're going to make you a puck. And then, well, how much? Free. Oh, okay. Well, you, we have, uh, we're using Vectric uh, Aspire, which is far overkill for what we were doing. But uh, to... Uh, to to do the uh, CAD portion of it, which is uh, just sort of putting someone's name in and choosing what, what graphics you want on the puck, and then uh, doing the CAM tool paths and then sending it down to the machine. And that, letting the kids see that whole process and then turn and see a machine going and see it, it moving on the screen as well as moving. Yeah, that was nice for people to be able to see because Vectric did have a booth set up, but it was, uh, I, I, and I didn't honestly didn't have a ch- much chance to go and see it because we were crazy busy the entire yeah. time. But the, it is nice to be able to see a, a machine sitting there and a, and a computer there having us work on, mm-hmm. on Vectric. And the, and whole, then, the whole tool chain. Exactly. Yeah, which they, they apparently their CNC... The spindle uh, crapped out in the, oh, first, no. in the first hour of the show. Yeah, so they were... And that's always the danger. In fact, I, I was terrified of the fact that we were going to lug this 100-pound CNC mill over to the other side of the pond and end up being in a situation where yeah. we, we couldn't do anything because some critical piece of hardware yeah. failed. I tried to bring spare parts for everything that I thought likely to blow or break. So I had spare bearings and... yeah. Belt, but at the end of the day, motor drivers. It. it was, it was uh, brilliant. It, it got, it, it was assembled quickly, and everything worked fine. We had, we had very few issues with it. Yeah, it's an amazing thing that yeah. that little CNC has made thousands of bucks. Yeah, it was just thrown together in a month in the basement with some spare parts. And yeah. So you think you'd, uh, you think you'll go back to Maker Central again uh, now that you've, now that you've experienced actually lugging a yeah, yeah. hundred pounds of, of mill around? Uh, do you think you would, uh, you would do it again? Or would you do it differently? I would consider making a lighter version of the machine. Yeah. But, uh, and and I, I don't know that I'd come all the way from Canada just to go to the show. Hmm. But uh, if we're invited somehow, and it would, I'd, yeah. it would be fun to come back. 
and uh, a year from now, I will have recovered from. <laughs> of course, from yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm asking yeah. you this right now, yeah. and your yeah. your your knees and ankle and back are sore from yeah. from yeah. carrying this thing around, and, and so that may not be the best time to make that decision. So after we spent two days there, because uh, I guess we arrived early Friday morning in in London, took the the train to Birmingham, and then set up Friday night, spent the uh, Saturday Sunday there. Yeah, and, and it was interesting because we were in the hotel where all the the ridiculously famous YouTubers were. And so that was fun to to hang out with uh, Jimmy Duresta, Laura Comp, and, you know, all yeah. the rest of them. Uh, and uh, a, a nice, nice bunch of people. Yeah, it was, uh, they, they were all very welcoming. It was it was nice to be able to chat with people. Uh, there were a lot of people from America there, which was nice. They I think they had... Uh, they they were happy to see some other people from from their side of the world as well to chat with and people yeah. who are who are more likely to go to some of the maker fairs that are closer than them and and uh, yeah I know that Jimmy Dresden a bunch of uh, YouTubers went to uh, Alex Steele hmm. well that's one of the nice things when you do visit some of these places it, the opportunity to do shop visits arises I, I'm often traveling to things like the OTI symposium. And one of the things we we intentionally do is arrange shop visits with the people who are local, uh, just to give an opportunity to see see that sort of thing. So if you, if you happen to be traveling somewhere, and there's an opportunity to maybe visit a shop or uh, you know see see a some some sort of a setup of somebody making and it's, and just it's to see the the different uh, things that are available in different areas. Yeah, like it might be different types yeah, of different wood services, or, or yeah. just. Different ways of doing things. Sure. I mean, you just you go. Oh, well, I never thought of that, but that looks cool. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So we spent uh, said we spent Friday, Saturday, Sunday uh, in Birmingham. Saturday morning, we woke up and chatted with a few people and and sort of had a late start, but that was good because we had a chance to sit and have breakfast with a few people and um, and chat a little bit more. And then we had a, a bit of a, a long journey back to London. Unfortunately. I think you got us on the wrong train initially. To uh, you got us on the milk run back to uh, back to London. That's, that is, I wanted to stop at every stop and enjoy yeah. the countryside. Get out at each station and just uh, wave my hand at tiny towns all <laughs> along the way. And then, of course, the train of its own accord decides to just park. Yeah, unfortunately, a, there were signals error yeah. on the. On but luckily, the train. we we were in uh, one of the nicest areas of the train, which was. Um, this little area right where the bathroom was. So we got to sit and watch every single passenger visit the bathroom and try to figure out how to make the door open and close, which is sort of frighteningly automated. You press a button and the door closes, and really you don't know if it's going to open of its own accord. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's, that's it's right, yeah. Disconcerting. So when, once, we, uh, once we finally did arrive back in London mid, uh, midday on, on Monday, we had a chance to do a little bit of touring and and uh, go out and see things. Now you've been to London a few times before, but for quick visits, what did you? And this wasn't by any means a long visit, but what did you? Uh, what were your impressions of London? We Monday was nice because it was a bank holiday, so uh, it was the, there was not really much crowds uh, on the subway. It, yeah, was, it was pleasant to get around. On Tuesday, uh, we were out at uh, uh, just after work, and the subways were absolutely packed. Uh, it was crazy, and all that, but. And it was pleasantly sunny and warm, actually hot. Yeah, it was like, 29 uh, 20, degrees and 29 sunny 29 degrees, every day we were here. Which, you know, makes one think uh, you should have brought shorts. And then uh, I think we went to the Science Museum on uh, Monday. Right. That's an amazing, amazing place. The uh, James Watt steam engines there, um, he was one of the first ones was a 
a water pump to pump water out of wells. Right. And well, we uh, saw the Newcomb engine, which was designed originally for the uh, that was a predecessor to the Watt engine, and was designed for pumping water out of a out of yeah. a mine shaft, and that was. Was that, was that the massive. Newcomb? I thought that yeah, was, it was the Watt. No, the first one we saw was the Newcomb engine. The second one was the Watt engine. Okay. And Watt was, had better marketing. Yeah, Watt did it's have... A, it's a Tesla Edison thing. That's yeah. right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Better better marketing. But yeah, absolutely fascinating, the scale of this. And it's nice to see that early Industrial Revolution equipment still sitting in use. And I guess if the zombie apocalypse ever happens, we may need to raid the VN, or the uh, the Science Museum to, yes. to uh, start the Industrial Revolution again. We'll we'll pull up a van and we'll load a a watt steam engine and a Cray one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and that's the nice thing about the science museum. If if you've never if you've never been to London or if you've never been to the science museum in London, it's it's worth a trip. Some fascinating things in there. Everything from as we say the early industrial revolution, all the way up to modern machines. They had uh, they even had a a modern a relatively modern CNC lathe on display there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also had uh, Cray supercomputer sitting there. Charles Babbage, uh, difference yeah. engine number two. Yeah, that's right. They had the number two difference engine, which unfortunately wasn't built in his lifetime. But uh, no, no, that was interesting. I mean, he designed it, but yeah. I mean, they couldn't build it at. That's right. In fact, the one that's on display in the in the science museum was built very recently. I, think. Yeah. I want to say it was built uh, the turn it was of the 80, century. It was eighty five to two thousand two. I believe. Right. Yeah, that's right. It was finished. It was finished at the turn of the century. So yeah, it's it's nice to see some of those things that are there. And uh, and they've got some fun exhibits there. It's certainly a great place for kids. There's there's definitely a lot of really fun exhibits there. For, yeah, for kids and some interactive things. The sound area. Yeah. Although I can't imagine sitting in that sound area all day as a as a guard that would drive you mental. But there's a a nice exhibit in the middle of that called Do Not Touch. Yes, which is just covered in Do Not Touch signs. You're supposed to touch it, but you get these absolutely horrible looks from people when you actually walk over and touch it and they're like yeah, that was great Did you read the enormous letters all over this thing and they don't realize it's it's an ironic thing it's, yeah yeah now the one of the big reasons i wanted to visit is the worshipful company of clockmakers has uh, set up an exhibit there with their collection of clocks and watches it is i believe the oldest collection of clocks and watches in the world and it is quite impressive they they have a huge selection everything from an early 15th century chamber clock. They have a few uh, larger clocks in the, in the museum as well. I think they had a, uh, a few early, I think it was a 14th century tower clock in the museum. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to see, to sort of chronologically, if you will, follow through the, the clock museum and uh, see the, the, the differences in how they make uh, gears. They go yep. from little little pin shaped things to to proper uh, properly shaped gears. Right, the early 15th century clock it doesn't have a properly shaped involute gear like what we use today. Mm-hmm. With uh, you know that's properly efficient and and will will transmit power better. I don't know what you call them. Those uh, the little flag things that uh, oh the virgin uh, folet that yes. uh, escapement that's on those early clocks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then to see, you know, to see the progression of the technology. Yeah. And, and, and then all of a sudden time. pendulums come into, yeah. into being and, and everything but immediately switches But it's all switches uh, over. accessible. Like, yes. I mean, you, you, you can look at it and see how it works, and then you, you see a better way of doing it, and you go, yeah, okay, I get that. Yeah. Which is, uh, it's different in the, the, the way nowadays it's like electronics and, comp- you know, it's like you don't see inside and how something works and what their progression is. Like the chips are... are have a much greater transistor density or something is but that means hard. nothing to the average yeah. person. Yeah, just you like can't oh look my at it and my say, new oh. iPhone does more. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so it's really neat. 
Yeah, it's, it's nice seeing that progression. They they have an incredible collection there. As you say, it is in chronological order, which is nice because you do get to see that that progression through time as the watches start to get smaller and smaller. And it's it's remarkable how quickly that happens. Yeah, yeah. There are watches from a long time ago that you'd be very happy to have in your pocket. Absolutely, There's no, yeah. no problem and, at all. And this is the, you you see the first sort of pocket, or well, not really pocket watches, sort of travel watches that are that are appearing. Um, that that sit on a desk and operate on a desk, and and they're appearing in the 16th century. And by the time you get to the end of the 17th century, you have something that we would recognize today as a pocket watch, and, and it's completely remarkable. usable. Absolutely, you know, yeah, absolutely. maybe not as accurate, but it doesn't matter how accurate it is. Yeah. You just have you get there when you get there in the end. But uh, and and, the, and it the, uh, it was nice also to see the the most. Recent watches, they, right, they, and that's like a, that is one of the nice things they've got, like very very modern things, and 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 still uh, innovation occurring, whole new ways of building watches. Sure, and, they and, have watches there from uh, from Derek Pratt. They have watches there from Roger Smith. They have some watches there from George Daniels, including the Patek Philippe. He modified with his coaxial escapement, and that's what he eventually was able to use to convince. Omega to put it in their watches and, and license the patent from him. Uh, and then they have a few of his pocket watches there, which is nice. Uh, now, if you go to the British Museum, they do have a few more of his watches there, uh, including a, a couple of his other more famous ones. But the, uh, it is nice to see a whole range of watches there and clocks. Of course, they're focusing on a lot of English watchmakers there, a lot of English clockmakers, but uh, they are the, you know, the worshipful company of clocksmiths in London. So mm-hmm. it makes sense that they're actually focusing on, on British horology as opposed to horology in Switzerland or anywhere else. Yeah, and it was a very, very nice exhibit and uh, in a nice location and just lovely to walk through. Yeah. Now, Tuesday morning we woke up and uh, we had wanted to see a few things at the V&A quickly before we, uh, we went off to our, our first appointment. Uh, but one of the things we found out while we were traveling here is that Museums have very relaxed hours here, yeah. and uh, they don't open until 10 a.m. in the morning, and they close at half past five in the evening, which is uh, rather Museums have, have bankers' hours. Uh, they yes. do have bankers' <laughs> hours, and, and uh, we were a little bit disappointed, so we, we didn't have an opportunity to, to run into the V&A first thing in the morning. Uh, but we did get a chance to go back there later in the afternoon uh, before we, we, had, uh, we were out going out for drinks. So what did you think of the V&A? Because I think this was your first opportunity to go through the V&A, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, it's another nice nice museum, uh, and and uh, it's interesting. We didn't have to pay anywhere. It, I mean, it's a, you you give a donation should you like to, but yeah, it didn't seem to be necessary. The VNA is, I would say, one of the interesting things about it is it, it's a it's difficult to find what you're looking for. We were looking for uh, at one point. I was looking for the modern gallery. You're going down passageways and upstairs, and you're basically lost. That's the problem with these old Victorian buildings, right? They were <laughs> they were never built with the intention of putting this many galleries in there. Yeah, but on the other hand, you you find a lot of things along the way. Yeah, I think almost every gallery has something interesting. I'm I'm happy to stop and look at at things and yeah. see what they're doing and how they're doing it. And we and to be fair, we only spent an hour and a half there, which is probably one thousandth of the time that you actually need to be able to mm-hmm. to get a proper visit into the to the, the VNA because it, it is just so dense with spectacular yeah. exhibits, spectacular objects. I really wanted to go back because uh, my the last few times I have been in London, I've been trying to get a good look at the Marode Cup, which is a fifteenth century uh, silver chalice that uh, that I've been fascinated with for years. I've been studying for years and wanted to see 
uh, in person. And the last few times I've been here, it has been off display, which was maddening. But uh, finally, mm-hmm. I was able to see it. So that was uh, that was nice to be able to. And it, the last time it was, you were here on a Friday. Yeah. It was supposed to open, but then they just delayed it till the Monday, and it, you so were flying out on Sunday. So one, the one room in the exhibit they hadn't rebuilt yet was the one that I really wanted to see. Yeah, you can go to a museum and. Uh, and if you you pick almost any item in it, and if you really know the history of it, all of a sudden it becomes a, a magnitude more fascinating. Absolutely. And to to look at this 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 thing, which I I would normally have just walked by and not mm. even given a second glance to, uh, and then you start looking at it and you realize the the technology and what they're doing with that, uh, and how innovative it was. Yeah. Uh, and then it it becomes uh, even more beautiful and uh, more amazing. Yeah, it is a it is a remarkable piece, and and certainly from a silversmith's perspective, it's a technically it's a very challenging piece that they made, uh, and this is one of the reasons that that it's attracted me so much is that it has incredibly skilled silversmithing and raising the cup itself. It, it also has some very remarkable enamel work in it. Uh, we'll, we'll make sure there's a photo of it in the in the show notes. And uh, anytime I look at something like that, and which the museum is just full of uh, things with such fine artistry mm-hmm. and fine work. You know, and I think of going down to my shop and trying to create something like that, and it's, I don't all operate at those tolerances at all, even though I have much more modern equipment. All right, but the, the nice thing is that those, you know that those things are, are achievable, right? And, mm-hmm. and, of course, in some cases, they were made by many, many hands. So we were, in, while in the same room as the Marode Cup, we were looking at this large, I guess it was a 16th century Flemish tapestry. And looking at that, that was that couldn't be made by one person. It's just no. too large a, an item to be made by one person. It would it but, would be a life's work. For uh, absolutely. Yeah. If if you wanted to do it as a single person, you would you'd spend your life doing it. But it is remarkable looking and seeing these these pieces. Uh, we saw some uh, micro mosaics in in one gallery that were were fabulous. We John and I talked about some of the micro marquetry that uh, Patek Philippe I believe it was was doing on some of their watches well these were larger scale items one was a whole tableau of of Rome yeah and uh, you stand a meter from it it looks just like a painting yeah absolutely and then you get closer and it's just tens of thousands of incredibly tiny little pieces yeah Yeah, it was was some remarkable work now the when we got up to the we did finally find the the modern art the more modern art gallery and one of the the galleries that we saw on the way in that was was really interesting was the Rapid Response Art Gallery. Mm-hmm. Uh, explain to us what what, is, what exactly is a Rapid Response Art Gallery? <laughs> yes, it appears to be. Uh, I'll be slightly facetious, but they, that <laughs> they spot something that is art worthy and literally rush out to to get it and get it in the gallery. And it doesn't have to be something amazingly beautiful. It can just be something that's that's evoking emotion. They had everything from T-shirts to um, the first 3D printed gun. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like things like that that are uh, changing the world right now. Yeah, it's, it's nice. One of the things that I like about the v is that they continue to add to their collection with modern pieces. And they're, they're in, they intentionally collect what is possibly the best art today in an attempt to be able to yeah. fill their galleries 200 years from now. Right? So not, not a 3D printed gun was intended to be art. But it's it's thought provoking, yeah. In the way that a lot of art is. As as a special treat on our last night, uh, we were able to arrange drinks with uh, Matt the Watch Nerd and a friend of his, Greg. 
we got together near the British Museum and we spent the evening with, uh, with Matt and Greg. It was a wonderful evening chatting with people who have similar passions to us and are curious about many of the same things that we are. Uh, so that was, a, that was very pleasant and we appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to meet these guys. Uh, at dinner, one of the interesting things I thought was the, the watch Matt was wearing, which yeah. uh, it, the, it had a, a hand going around uh, once a second, but stopping every eighth of a second. But the thing is, just sitting chatting at dinner, well, and this watch would be sort of ticking away on his wrist, it would catch your attention because the motion was so unique, uh, especially for a mechanical watch. Right. So the, the regular seconds hand mounted at the center was a stop seconds which is nice to see. I like that, uh, that stop seconds. But then the sub-dial at 9 o'clock was an eighth of a second. The watch was oscillating at 8 hertz. So if uh, you listen to last week's episode of the podcast, you'll, um, we, we talked a little about, about the different frequencies that watches are, uh, are running at. So this one was running at 8 hertz. And you could see the, uh, the, the sub-dial had a stop second, but for an eighth of a second. And it was mm-hmm. nice to be able to see this this yeah. move along, and uh, I, it's I just grabbed fast some... enough to be fascinating. Yes, but absolutely. It's not so fast that it that you don't you know it's just not spinning around. Yeah, it was it was a nice watch to see. It was it was pleasant to see something a bit different. So, anyways, that was a, a, a quick rundown, quick chat with Rich, and what we're what we were up to this week. It was uh, it was a whirlwind tour of England and Birmingham and London, but it was certainly worthwhile, and it was uh, it was enjoyable. Certainly looking forward to coming back, and I'll, I should be back later this summer uh, for a BHI course, and uh, looking forward to uh, to doing that. And I'm going to spend a little bit more time here, so it's not quite a whirlwind tour, yeah. because there's no way you can you can do the VNA it's, in, in it's, an hour and a half. It is hard to see London in a, a day and a half. Oh, absolutely, uh, it's impossible know. to see London in a day and a half. But we we got to see some interesting things. All right, well, thank you very much, Rich, and appreciated the the trip, and and it was a it was a good time traveling with you. And this has been a, a good chat. It's been nice to record our ideas and thoughts about the, the trip. 